so here we are, um, session three in our faith series, um, looking at the foundations of our faith. Um, and uh, today, speaking very specifically about the Holy Trinity, last week we talked about just foundational concepts in which we talked a lot about the Trinity and about the Incarnation. So today will be probably a little bit shorter. Um, I'll encourage you to look at the reflection questions. Uh, so look at the reflection questions now, and uh, if you have a pen, um, you can uh, you can try to kind of fill in the answers as as we go um, along. So um, I'll just read through the, the, the reflection questions. Um, I, I mean, you know, we can all read, but kind of. It, to give us kind of things to focus on as we go through the through through the through the talk today. So, what word best describes the being of God, like what He is made of? Um, is it possible to conceive of any one person of the Holy Trinity without immediately thinking of the other two, and why? Why is there one God and not three? What word does the Church use to describe the unity of the nature? in the Godhead. What word describes the fact that each person of the Trinity possesses the entire divine nature? It's also the, a word that we use to describe the wholeness of the church. What word does the church use to describe the fact that each person of the Trinity lives in the others? What Old Testament event foreshadows the revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity? Are the Son and the Spirit in any way inferior to the Father? Which person of the Trinity is involved in the salvation of humankind? Can we consider the doctrine of the Trinity to be optional equipment? So, some of these questions may be obvious even before the talk, and some of them not so much. Um, and as we go through the talk, you'll find like these questions are referring to very specific things in the talk. So it's just kind of a little bit... Um, of a way to kind of, you know, keep us focused. And rather than thinking of these questions as like you just want to answer the question, yes or no or whatever, but if you were asked this question, you know, how would you answer? What would you say? How would you explain it to a well-intentioned person who is genuinely asking you the question? Um, that way, uh, because these are questions that do that people do ask and do uh, when they're thinking about the Trinity. The trouble with the concept of the Trinity is most of us, most of us are familiar with simple math. So when we add one plus one plus one, we are not expecting to end up with one. We're expecting to end up with three. So if there's Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we're expecting that that means that there are three gods, but then we say one God, amen. So the thing is kind of confusing that you have Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and then you're only left with one in the end. So it's like, you know, and so it kind of defies our, our reason, or at least reason as, as we know it um, to be. So hopefully today we can demystify some things. Of course, some things will remain, you know, uh, not necessarily like crystal clear, but hopefully a lot of things will be, will be clearer as, as we go. 
So to start, in summary, the persons of the Trinity are three co-equal, co-eternal persons of the same essence. So think of one essence, like all of these pews in the church are made of oak wood, right? So they are, they are distinct. You can tell the difference between the pews on the right from the pews on the left. But they're all made of the same stuff. So that's what it means of the same essence. Okay? Uh, like just because the sun is, is, you know, fully human and fully divine, but he has a human body and the spirit is, you know, like, like the wind, you know, Jesus describes it and no one knows where it comes from and where it goes, doesn't mean that they're not made of the same stuff. They're still made of the same stuff. Okay? So that's what it means of one essence. Co-equal. So there's no hierarchy in the Trinity. No one is greater, but yet there is an order. But there's no precedence. So we'll talk about all of those things. Co-eternal, right? So there's, there, is, there isn't one that came before the other. That's the idea of no precedence. No one preceded the other. One undivided uh, Godhead. One God, not three. Most, and the most important reason, like you're going to say, well, why are we so obsessed with the Trinity? The most important reason that the church is obsessed with any doctrine is because it's true. Like, another word for Christian could be truth seekers or truth lovers. So we're chasing the truth. In as, as much as we're able, as much clarity as we're able to find it. Jesus mentions the Trinity, not the word Trinity. The word Trinity never comes up in the Bible. But he mentions the Trinity and the persons of the Trinity many times in the Gospels. And this is just a selection. For example, he says, I and my Father are one. And he doesn't say that. That statement doesn't come for free in John 10.30. He gets persecuted for that. And they say, how can you call God your Father and so on? You being a man and so on, right? Um, in all of the, the Gospels, there's the account of Jesus' baptism, right? In which the voice of the Father is heard from heaven. The, the dove is seen alighting and resting on, on him and uh, on Jesus. And so again, we see sort of the Trinity. And that's why this feast is sometimes called Epiphany or sometimes called Theophany. Phany uh, means to see. You know, Epiphany means like to, to, to have like like a late vision, like, you know, and you realize what has always been, which is to, to realize the Trinity, or theophany, to realize, to know God, right? To see God, and God was seen, or maybe the Father was not seen, but He was heard, and the Son was seen, and, and the Holy Spirit was seen in the form of the dove. Um, in Matthew uh, 28, at the very end, in the Great Commission, He says, Go baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, uh, and, and many other references as well. Jesus talks about the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So, the Father will send Him and He will remind you of all the things I said to you. So, all three persons of the Trinity, again, mentioned in the same statement. Um, so all of this to say that, that like, although the word Trinity does not come up in Scripture anywhere, 
The, the, the persons of the Trinity is something that Jesus spoke about very, very naturally in the Gospels. And like we were speaking last week, the love of one person naturally overflows into the next. So there's this unending love relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There was a heresy that came out. I didn't look it up for this talk, so don't quote me, but came out, I think, around in the second century or so, saying that if God is love, then God created us out of necessity because God needed to love somebody. Because you can't... Love is dual. Like Love requires an outpouring towards somebody. So God created us because He needed some target for His love. It's a heresy. And the answer is very simple to that, is that God has a perfect love relationship in and within the Trinity, the Father loving the Son, loving the Holy Spirit. They're all loving each other and all in all the different directions, right? Um, um, and and that is the, that's the perfect love relationship that already exists in the Trinity, right? But the names of the persons of the Trinity, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, reveal sort of, one could say, their character and how they all work together. And it gives, it, it, it gives them personality. Remember we were saying last time that it's personal, right? It's face-to-face. The, 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 the relationship of the persons of the Trinity, right, is our personal and that we believe in a personal God, not an impersonal, not a force of nature like, like gravity or like natural selection or whatever, but rather a very, a very personal God who has, a, you know, personal um, attributes, right? And this shows diversity within the Trinity. So despite being coessential of like one essence yet there's diversity there's a father and there's a son and there's a holy spirit and so on so this is a, a quote from bishop Callisto swear in the orthodox way great book um if you're uh, if you're interested um took me like two years to get through it although it's not very thick uh because every paragraph i found myself reading it uh over and over and over again and just munching on it um, slowly. So he says on page 27, he says, The Christian God is not just a unit, but a union. Not just unity, but community. There is in God something analogous to society. Not society, but something similar, analogous to society. He is not a single person loving himself alone. Not a self-contained monad, like the one. He is a tri-unity, three equal persons, each one dwelling in the, in the other by virtue of an unceasing movement of mutual love. So, we see here that Bishop Callistos is trying to describe the, the Holy Trinity both by sort of what he is and what he isn't, hoping, hoping and somehow to kind of bring us a little closer, you know, bring the swinging pendulum a little bit closer to, to center. So the Christian God is not a unit, but a union, or better said, a community, right? Um, and we talked a little bit about that last, last week, and, and we're going to talk about it in sort of the practical implications of all of this. This is, um, on another handout that I gave you, seven kind of basic tenets of the doctrine of the Trinity. 
So these kind of seven statements, you know, briefly encapsulate like all of what we believe about the Trinity. So it's not exhaustive, but certainly gives us gives you a, a good reference point. And I printed it just because I think it's a good reference. Of course, like you can have like my slides or whatever. And all of this, um, you know, comes largely directly from the book by Clark Carlton called The Faith. So the first tenet, he says, or first doctrine, there is one God because there is one Father who is the source and principle of the Godhead. The Father begets the Son and breathes forth His Spirit. The Son is the Son of God and the Spirit is the Spirit of God. So the Father is the Father and from Him proceeds the Son and from Him proceeds the Spirit. Okay? Now, I know that sounds like it contradicts some stuff I said earlier, and we're going to get to it later in the other ensuing six points. But the idea is, is the Father is the source, and because He is the source, everything is coming from Him. And so there is one God, not three, because it's all coming, it's all coming from the Father. There is one and only one God. The multiplicity of persons in the Godhead in no way divides the, divides the divine unity or creates three gods. So just because the sun is seen walking on planet earth for 33 years does not make him separate from the Father. And in the liturgy, can you just grab me the liturgy book and open to the confession of sentences at the end? In the liturgy, um, and Mark is just grabbing us a liturgy book, right? The priest says this kind of final confession. And in it, um, in it are a whole lot of statements, right? That we say like, he is without separation, right? So the priest says, Amen, 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 I believe and confess to the last breath and so on, that this is the life-giving flesh of the only begotten Son, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and so on, right? Um, and then he says he made it one with his divinity, without mingling, without confusion, without alteration. Truly I believe that his divinity never parted from his humanity for a single moment or a twinkling of an eye. So, like, this is speaking specifically to Christology, to, like, the nature of Christ. But, you know, in a certain sense it is analogous to also the persons of the Trinity, Right? Um, that there is, no, there is no separation from them. They're distinct. They're not confused. It's not like you don't know if it's the, is it the Father or is it the Son. No, they're, dis they're distinct, but they're not separate. I know these things is like, I mean, they're distinct, but they're not separate, you know? So they're not, in no, in, at no time is it the Son in the absence of the Father and the Spirit. They're never separate. But they are distinct. You can see the Son, you can see the Father, you can, or you can't see the Father, but you can, you know, and the, and the action of the Holy Spirit. So there are three co-eternal, co-equal persons in the Godhead. So there's no hierarchy. There's no one is better than the other, one is older, they're co-eternal. So there's no concept of time. Time is a creation, right? So God is outside of creation. God is the creator. So God is not subject to time. So just because the Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father, it doesn't mean that the Father is before the Son and the Spirit. It just means that there is this order, that there is an order that the, the, that the Father, from Him proceeds the Son and from Him proceeds the Spirit. 
but there's no concept of time. He's not, there is no time that the sun was not. So that's where Arianism comes from, which is now modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, right? So Arius, the, 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 the heretic whom Athanasius you know, spent a career, like his whole career was to disprove Arianism, right? Basically, they, they, they popularized their teachings by creating songs in which the chorus was, there was a time when the sun was not. This is based on a, 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 um, a verse in Proverbs, and, and, and I can tell you all the history of it some other time, right? But so, now there is a famous statement in Orthodoxy coined by Athanasius that says the exact opposite. There was no time when the Son was not. So just because the Son proceeds from the Father doesn't mean that, that the Father was first and the Son was second. I'll give you an example, right? Mina wants put, is putting up his hand to ask a question and he's looking at me funny, right? But he hasn't said a word yet. He hasn't said anything yet. We're recording. And there's no voice of Mina on the recording. But does that mean that the word which Mina wants to say does not exist? No, it exists. Where? In the mind of Mina. So it's there. It just hasn't come up. Right? So just because Christ was not incarnate until the Annunciation, when, you know, when, when, you know, when he became a, an embryo and then a fetus and so on, in the womb of St. Mary, doesn't mean that the Son didn't exist before that, right? And doesn't mean that the Son never existed. He was always in the mind of the Father. But, the, but he proceeds from the Father. And there is no time that the mind of the Father didn't have the Son. So there's no time precedence. Just because there's order, there is an order that the Son proceeds from the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, but there's no time in which, in which the, 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 the Father was, existed and the Son or the Spirit did not. Does that make sense? I didn't allow you to ask your question. Go ahead. I'd rather not be recorded, but okay. <laughs> uh, like... Does the okay? So there is no time to God. So is the proceeding like relevant to us, or is it because like it's re like why does it matter? Why does it matter that the Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father? Because their their essence, they take their essence from the Father. But we already said that they're all of one essence because they're all God. Precisely, they are all of one essence because they take their essence from the Father. Okay, but why does the precedence matter then? Because it's the order. Because it's the truth. Not because it doesn't... Because it's the re revealed truth. And we can look up verses from the Bible that talk all about this, right? Where, uh, where like Jesus specifically speaks about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father. And he says that he came forth, I came forth from God, Jesus says, right? So there is an order which is revealed, Right? Which is not like, uh, it's not hypothesized, or it's, it's just revealed. Yeah, like for instance, the example that you used, like the words that are formed in my mind, it means like I created them. Yes, but there was no time that they were not, they were not there. But and that's why we prefer the word, we prefer the word begotten rather than created. So in the creed, we say the only begotten of the Father, rather than born of the Father. Because born of the Father 
means that there was a time before that he was not. Begotten of the Father means that he was always with the Father, but then the Father sent him forth. Is different. Right? But is it? Yeah, it is, because he was always with the Father. There was no time when he was not. But then the, the Father chose a time, in the fullness of time, like it says in Galatians, right? He was made, he was made manifest. David had a comment. I was about to say what what Mark said. Oh, okay. And Mark was going to say something. Yeah, I think you answered the same question of Mina in the first uh, like session uh, or the last week when you said like like our salvation is also or like why we were created is like to enjoy the love between the the the, the three person of the Trinity. So like having one one person not existed before the other, or the other is just like, you know, there's order in their existence, I've, I think like it's going to, you know, like, was going to be lack of the equation of, of love between the three persons of Trinity. So Mark and I are using the word order differently. Mark is saying that they're, if they're, like, he's saying order as though order one, two, three, right? Actually, I have a nice quote coming up later. I think I added it. Um, that talk, talks about that, that there's no order, but Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Jesus is number one and number three. Like, because God is number one and number three. There's no, there's no order in terms of uh, one, two, three. There's no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. But in roles. Even the word role, even the word roles um, suggests that one person does something and another person doesn't. You're the event coordinator. You're the, you're the, the head, the administrator. You, you know, you're, you're the head of liturgics. Each person has a role and, you know, and we help each other out, but you're the leader of this. The Trinity doesn't work that way either because they all work together in everything. Although one person of the Trinity may be more visible than, than the others, but they're all working nonetheless. So when we say order, then what do we mean? We mean that there is, there is a relationship, right? Uh, there's a relationship of precedence. Doesn't mean order first, second, third. Doesn't mean order in time, uh, you know, uh, earliest, you know, late, latest, and the guy in the middle. It, it just means that the Son and the Spirit proceeded forth from God still not clear to me like like it's a very confusing concept that i don't see like like it may may or may not be the truth that is irrelevant to me like why does it matter to me well first of all it matters because the first thing we said is that the whole reason we're here is because we love the truth and we're following the truth so the truth there's a difference between the truth and the lie and in earlier sessions we talked about how the truth is revealed so if the truth is, 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 is revealed, that doesn't mean that necessarily it is all revealed, right? But that means that these particular things have been revealed. So that's one reason why it matters. Then there's gonna, we're going to get into practical implications um, of, of all of this. And then you'll see in there, there also why it matters, right? Thirdly, um, uh, thirdly, like the fact that there is order doesn't mean that there is hierarchy, Right? It just means that there's order. It just means that, like, that, like if, 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 if we decide in the church, you know, like in the early church, there was an area where families uh, worshipped together, where the widows sat, where the orphans sat, where the deacons sat, where the elders sat, where the bishop stands. There's just order. It doesn't mean that this one is better than that one, or this one is better than that one. 
doesn't mean one is better, it doesn't mean who came first, it just means that there's order, that there's just, God is a God of order, that your things are ordered, they, they, they have, everything has a place, if that makes any sense. They are not necessarily at the exclusion of each other, David has something in the next someone is better than the other, then we're basically saying that the three are not the same. Because they are actually just the same. It's not like one is even better or come first or after. They are actually just the same. Yes. And actually... We cannot just say what is better because for us... I know what you're... I know what you're Yeah, I know what you're saying. In my slides, I say they're equal but not the same. Right? So it's sort of like how we talk about equality of gender. It's like men are not better than women, women are not better than men. But they're not the same. They're, they're, they're not the same. They're bi biologically, they're different. Uh, on a multitude of different levels, they're different. They're not, we can't say men and women are the same. Uh, you know, there's an enormous intersect between the two. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of things they share in common. But they're not the same, but they're equal. When we say... In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes. One God. They are actually one. Yes. But they are just the same. <laughs> <laughs> they're not the same. They're, di they're, they're, they're not different, but they're not no, the same. Men and women are human, right? So the essence, like we're human, but in gender, we're different, so we're not the same, but we're equal as humans in terms of our essence. Yeah. yeah. I understand what, uh, what you want to say. Yes. What you want to say? In Arabic, you <laughs> I never said that. Yeah, yeah, but it's close. It's close. There are a couple of analogies that always make this topic a little bit, a little bit easier. Although every analogy is faulty, and every analogy doesn't work really well, and the pure theologians don't use analogies at all because at some point they obviously fall apart, and it doesn't take very long. One of the analogies people use is to say that the Holy Trinity is like the sun. Right? It emits light and heat and gravitational energy. Right? And although you, may, you can measure like one, like you can measure light with a spectrophotometer or whatever, gravitational energy, you know, there's ways to measure it. Right? So you can really just focus on the light or just on the gravitational energy or just on the heat, I don't know, with a thermometer or whatever, but they're never one to the exclusion of the others. They can never be, so they can never be separated. Although, Although oftentimes people devote entire careers to studying just one tiny aspect of one of those things, but in reality they're never, they're never separate. Does that make sense? Right? And they all proceed forth from the sun, like the sun, You know, they all, the, the heat, the light, the, you know, the, that, that burning rock at the center of our. Another analogy that is often given is uh, the person. So the person is, is, um, is body and is soul and is spirit. And the soul has, is the seat of the mind. So, you know, like when I'm talking, with, when I'm talking with, with you, right, I don't say, like, so now I am talking to the mind of Mark. You know, I'm just talking to Mark, right? And he's, he's one person. Although there are very specific attributes to his mind, different from the attributes of his body, different to the attributes of his spirit. But separating them out, other than for academic purposes, doesn't really make sense, you know? Um, another analogy which is used, um, which is an analogy that kind of Jesus gave. He says, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser, right? And the sap which runs through, Jesus doesn't say, 
say this specifically, but it's obvious in many other parts of Scripture, that the sap, which is like un the unseen thing that gives life to the, whole, to the whole thing, is the Spirit, right? So different. They are kind of different analogies, but of course, if, you, you know, if we're going to start like, picking at the analogies, you're going to find they fall apart very, very quickly. I just want to say something uh, regarding the uh, last point. Um, we have to eliminate the time from the theme. I mean, the timing is a dimension to ours. So there is no timing for God. And I guess of God, no, no, no timing. So we can say um, the Father, after that, uh, in the second order, uh, the son, we can't say that, we can, we can, okay, there is, there is ordering, but at no time, there is no time. Mm -hmm. But, that's but that doesn't mean there is no, or there, there is ordering, but no time, at no, there is no time at that time. But that's, I think, where it's hard to understand, because if there is no time, then where does the order come from? Because our experience of reality is completely tied to time. So it's hard for us to imagine, it's hard for us to even fathom that, that, the, that all of the universe, all of everything that ever is, I want to say all creation, but it's more than creation. It's the creation and the creator. is all kind of like one big canvas, you know? And your whole life, and the whole life of the entire universe, and the whole, the whole existence as we know it is all just displayed before God. Like there's no, so there's no, you know, I was born, and then, you know, so... But it's all before him. Like, there's no, it's not happening at different times, you know? So, like, we've talked about this before, where we talk about eternity, and we say, like, eternity could be viewed in many ways. One way is that, like, the seconds hand on your watch just keeps going and going and going and going and going, so time never ends. And another way is to think of it as time, the seconds hand on your watch has just stopped. So time has stopped. So time will never end. Because it has stopped, right? So the, the fathers mostly allude to eternity in that second, that second kind of analogy. That you know, heaven is really the best moment, the most ecstatic moment of your life, and time has stopped, right? And you have, with the fullness, with the fullness of memory and understanding of, of your existence. You know, like I, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but imagine I could remember everything life, right, and can see it all before me, in light of God, who is even bigger, in the happiest moment of my life, again, as an analogy of heaven. Nina had his hand up, and then we'll keep going. No, sorry, just a question, so the sun was mentioned in the Old Testament, right? Yes, we're going to get to that. So basically, that answers your question, that the sun existed, same as Abuna's example, that when you have something in mind and then it's coming. So it was in the Old Testament, the sun is coming. So uh, it already existed. I'm not in disagreement with that. What I'm trying to understand is, how do we make a statement like, there is no time, but something proceeds from something? Because, like, I can't, like, I don't understand it in my head, like, how we're saying, okay, God is outside of time, but... So this is a proceeds from the father. This is a horrible analogy, okay? Like it's only going to be true in one very one tiny point, right? Like you go to Niagara Falls, okay? There's water in the basin at the top, there's water on the fall and there's water at the bottom, right? Suppose you just take a picture, right? 
when you paint that picture, right, there's water, like, there's water in all three, but the water came from the top. Just because it's at the bottom doesn't mean it came from somewhere else in all of you know, likelihood it came from the top. So it all proceeds, it all proceeds from one place, right? But that doesn't work because there's time. Like the reason why I know this is because time exists. But I think I told you this is a horrible analogy. It's just it's only true in a snapshot. It's only true in a no, but it's not true in a snapshot. Like if, if everything existed all at once, then you can't have water falling from the from the top of the basin through the falls and to the bottom. Why not? Because it's true. Yes, but outside of, like, if, if time didn't exist, like, how is that water, like, for movement to happen, time has elapsed. Yes, in, in, in the concept of movement, yes. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. But really, really what you need to do to, to, to get your head wrapped around this is just allow yourself to step outside of time. Yeah. Right? The easiest way to do that, honestly, and we, we're terrible at this, especially here in Toronto, productivity central, right, is, is to live in the moment, to be present. The easiest way to do this that I'm aware of is the Jesus prayer, right, where we just allow time to stop and, or keep going, or it's irrelevant to me, I don't care, time is moving, the time is not moving, I'm with, you know, I'm with my beloved and my beloved is with me. There's no tomorrow, there's no yesterday, I don't care. I, I'm in, my own, I'm in my own little paradise, right, with my beloved. Sorry. first verse. In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was God, and God was in the beginning. Yes. So there's something, there is a beginning. Yes. If there's a beginning to anything, would there be an end? Jesus says, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So that's the beginning. In the beginning there was the Word. How? Yeah. Like this, I find it. Yes. Yes. To our sins. There's a beginning for us. Right? There's a beginning for our understanding. There's a beginning for existence as we know it. But for God, He is the beginning and the end. So that if He is the beginning and He's also the end. He's both. That means the beginning is the end. So you end up with the start, the starting point. Like if you know, they do marathons in Toronto like crazy in the summer and block all our roads, right? If, if the starting point is the finish line, then what do you have? A closed loop, right? Well, you know that closed loop when you talk this to us. This is muddying the water even more. Because yeah. then yeah. If, if, what is it called? Like, so I agree, God has no beginning and no end. But then the statement saying like the son proceeds from the father, yeah. that that implies a beginning. No, because he has always proceeded from the father. 
And he always continues to proceed from the Father. And he always will proceed from the Father. Like if you want to stay caught in time, tell yourself, he has always, he has always proceeded from the Father. He is always proceeding from the Father. He will always continue to proceed from the Father. Right? In past, present and future. So then the proceeding is meaningless. Well, the proceeding, no, the proceeding is eternal. The proceeding is eternal. It's something that is, that is always, it is always happening. Like your mind is always coming up with ideas and you're always talking. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. <laughs> Allow... Uh, I'm just teasing you. I'm just teasing you. Allow me, I'm the chatterbox if any of us is one, right? Allow me to just continue, right? Allow me to just continue, right? So... We, we went through some of these, right? So that there... There are three co-eternal and co-equal persons in the Godhead. The absolute oneness of God in no way diminishes the personal distinctiveness and, their, and, the, and reality. In other words, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are real persons and not merely roles that one plays, that one God plays at different times. So God is not, God is not, and that's why I said roles but not roles, right? Because he's not, it's, he's not an actor. You know, in ancient times, you'd have like four actors acting 20 parts and they would wear different costumes or different masks to be the different person. So God isn't putting on, He's one God, but He puts on a mask as the Father, and then another mask as the Son, and then another mask as the Spirit. He's one, He is one God, three distinct persons, although distinct but not separate. In begetting the Son and uh, breathing forth the Spirit, the Father bestows upon them the fullness of His being. Thus the Father, Son, and Spirit describe um, each possess the same divine nature or essence. To describe this, the church uses the word coessential, meaning of one essence, of the same essence or same substance. Right? So the Father, out of him proceeds the wholeness of God. Right? As the Son or as the Spirit. So there is not one more a complete version of God than the other, if that makes any sense. That's what that statement is saying. Each person of the Godhead possesses the entirety of the divine nature. God is not divided into three parts because the divine nature is one and indivisible. Because the Son and the Spirit, because the Son and the Spirit possess the fullness of the divine nature, they are no less God than God the Father, even though they derive their being from Him. Each person of the Godhead is therefore Catholic meaning whole and complete. So when we use the word Catholic, like in, in the creed, we mean whole and complete, the, the entirety of, right? And we can use that word also to describe each of the persons of the Trinity. So there isn't one which is missing something from another. Sometimes people would say in communion, oh God, like, like oh God, can you give me the heart? In mass time in communion, oh God, can you give me, uh, like, like, can you give me this or that, right? The, the, the body of Christ which is distributed in Holy Communion is the wholeness of the body of Christ. Right? Broken for the life of the world. Broken to be given to men for the life of, of, of the world. As again an analogy. The sixth statement. Each person of the Godhead exists by the, a total gift of himself to the other persons and in unbroken and perfect communion of love. The Father is the originator of this cycle. I know you're dying with me now. 
right? <laughs> uh, originator of this cycle, bestowing the fullness of his being on his son and his spirit. They return this love to the father and exchange it with one another, forming an unbreakable unity of love. In this way, each of the persons is said to exist in the others. It is impossible to conceive of one person without thinking of the other two persons. The church uses the word co-inherence in Greek perichoresis to describe this fact. So to kind of make this a little bit clearer, I looked up like a dictionary uh, like de definition of the word inherent. The word inherent as described in the dictionary, it's an adjective meaning existing in something as a permanent, essential characteristic or attribute, right? So it's not really the persons of the Trinity are not characteristics or attributes, but we could say that they exist in one another permanently and essentially because they're of the same essence. The Father is not the Father if, the, if, the, if He doesn't have the Spirit and if He doesn't have the Son in Him. So the, the, the Father has the Son and has the Spirit in Him always. And from Him proceed, proceeds the Son in whom is the Father and is also the Spirit. So they are in one in, in each other all the time. And because they are of the same essence. Again, all of these are like statements that are very kind of like difficult to describe, right? But all of this is going to, I promise you, you're kind of listening and think you should have like, why do I care, right? The practical implications of all of this are coming, are coming up and they're, they're massive. They're actually, they, they will completely... They should completely change the way we see the universe and how we treat each other. The last statement says, This perfect communion of love is eternal. There was never a time when the Father did not beget His Son and breathe forth His Spirit. In fact, the concept of time is inapplicable to God because it is a created phenomenon. The Holy Trinity is eternal beyond all our created notions of time or space. To say then that God begets His Son and breathes forth His Spirit does not imply temporal succession or change in God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that's kind of what we've been talking about all this time. Right? So, like, an example of that is in Job 34, one of my favorite verses. It says about God, if He should set His heart on it, if He should gather to Himself His Spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Right? So uh, Elihu, the friend of Job, is telling, is telling Job that it's by God's Spirit that the whole world is upheld. The life of all of creation is the Spirit of God. Right? But that doesn't, that doesn't make the Spirit of God separate from God. But it also, there is a distinctness of the Spirit versus versus the Father as Creator. So the practical implications. Okay, this is really the really big one, right? The really big one is that we are created in God's image, like we spent a lot of time talking about last week, right? So nothing on earth is individual or independent. Nothing is separate from the other. All of these statements about the Trinity in some way apply to us because we're created in His image. So there's no such thing as individuality. There's no such thing as, as, as separate. Like, you know, I'm going to help you out as much as you can, but if bad stuff happens to you, I mean, like life is tough, right? So, right? You know, you know here's, I'll uh, help you out with this and that, and I wish you well. See you later. Sign on. Right? 
No, when, when bad things happen to you, bad things happen to me because I am in you and you are in me. You are part of me and I am part of you. And this is not a statement for just for the church, but it's a statement for all of humanity, in fact, all of creation. St. Siloan, uh, quoting him, quoting St. Siloan, he says, He who has the Holy Spirit in him, to however slight a degree, sorrows day and night for all of mankind. His heart is filled with pity for all God's creatures, more especially for those who do not know God or who resist Him and therefore are bound for torment. For them, more than for Himself, He prays day and night that all may repent and know the Lord. He's saying, he's saying the, person, the, the person who has even the slightest hint of the Holy Spirit can see that these divisions between us are, are irrelevant, are fabricated. Right? There's no such thing as individualism or individuality. This is, a, this is just a, 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 a social construct. Right? The, the reality, as, the, as God sees it, as, it's described, as, as God describes it, as He reveals it to us, is that what happens to you happens to me. So there's no such thing as, as like, you know, like, like I serve... You know, I served Dina as best as I could, and you know what? She rejects the word of God, so like, you know, well, God be with her, you know what I mean? And, right? Even like, like, like St. Silwan is having a conversation with one of the monks, and the monk is telling him God will throw sinners into hell. So the St. Silwan says to the monk, he says to him, so then what, what will God do with you? And he says to him, uh, he, he says, well, you know, and as much as I you know, lived a life of repentance and holiness and adhered to the teachings of the church, you know, God has prepared heaven for me. So he says, so you will go to heaven with the full knowledge that your brother has gone to heaven. And the monk says, yes. He goes, and what kind of heaven will that be for you? So this idea, if I, if I really love my brother, if I really see that my brother is inseparable from me, right? Then I can't help, I can't help but, but somehow in some intelligent and relationally sensitive and way, try to find a way for, for him to, to know God. Because in, on the last day, he will have to choose to be with God or to choose not to be with God. And I want him to choose to be with God. Because he's a part of him. I can't fathom him not being with, not being with God eternally. I, it, I, can't, I can't fit it in my head. I can't allow it. I can't accept it. Right? So when, when I read this, I wonder to myself, and I'm asking myself, I'm asking John, I'm wondering to myself how I sleep at night. You know? I'm wondering to myself, how do I just allow, my, you know, how do I allow myself to be so, so... Heartless, you know, to the salvation of the world. And, I, you know, here we took it in the concept of salvation, but it, it, becomes, it, it becomes everything. It becomes my bread, his bread I wish to share with my brother. My, my brother is hungry, I'm hungry. And like St. Paul says, if my brother stumbles, I stumble. Right? And so on and so on. You can apply it in many, different, in many different ways. So this, all of this kind of like these maxims or these like statements we're saying about the Trinity, co-essential, co-equal, blah, 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 right? It's not just like lofty stuff for theologians to sit and argue about because we're made in His image. So in as much as we understand, the, the, you know, 
God, not that we'll ever fully understand Him, in as much as we understand what, what we're supposed to look like. You know, have you ever tried to make a thousand piece puzzle without looking at the picture? So like a while ago they came up with these, like this new thing, right? mystery puzzles. You get a thousand pieces in a plastic bag and God be with you to try to get them all together, right? What is the first thing I do when, I make a, when I'm trying to put a puzzle together? I put the picture in front of me, right? And I'm trying to see, okay, there's a blue sky at the top, and then there's, and then there's a blue lake at the bottom. But the, the color of the lake is different from the sky. I try to find pieces. Which pieces belong to the lake? Which pieces belong to the sky? If I don't have the picture, how, how, if I don't have the, 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 how am I ever going to reconstruct it, right? We are in this process of reconstruction. Right? My, my life of sanctification is a return to the likeness of God, to look again like God. Right? He's taken all the pieces of the puzzle and put them, put them together, like brought them you know, in the same room. Now they're being rearranged so that I will look again like, like God. So in knowing, in knowing God, what, or what has been revealed about Him, you know, we, we, can, we can see our journey of, of, of holiness uh, better, right? So our, another, another reason that's very practical why this business of the Trinity is really, really important to us, right? Even if we don't get the words right, the way theologians put them, same and equal and, and all this stuff and uh, substance and essence and there's differences and people fight over it. Are they consubstantial or of one essence and so on, but you know, even if we don't remember is it this or is it that, but we get the concept. Our salvation consists not in our learning about God, but in entering into a personal communion of love with Him. And in this life, uh, and, and in this is life eternal, that they might know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, 3. So what we're trying to do is enter into this love relationship. Be part of this love relationship, this co-inheritance with God. Like there's a, there's a highway and then there's an on-ramp. I'm trying to take the on-ramp to come and flow with the movement of the Holy Trinity. This movement of love of one person, one person to, to the other, right? So it means like if God is personal and the persons of the Trinity relate to each other in a personal way, then I also am... I also am relating to a personal God. So I'm going to talk to God like He's a person. I'm not, I'm not going to relate to God like He's a force. I have a relationship with gravity. I believe in gravity. So I'm not going to take my laptop and throw it up in the air. Because I like my laptop. I don't want it to be destroyed. Right? So I have a relationship with gravity. But it's not a personal relationship with gravity. It's a relationship where I respect gravity. I, understand, I have a vague idea of how it works. And I try to obey the rules. Because that's the way it is. If I drop something, you know, I don't start fighting with gravity and get angry with gravity, right? I also have a relationship with my wife, right? I try not to throw my wife up in the air so she doesn't fall and break. No, I'm just kidding, right? But I have a relationship with her. It's a personal relationship, right? And we, it's completely different from my relationship with gravity, right? The idea that God is personal. Then... Another thing is, you see, just within God, just within the Trinity, there's genuine orderly diversity. So there's diversity, but there's order, and there's no hierarchy, right? A simple kind of analogy, for example, in the liturgy. There's no hierarchy. There's a priest, 
There's the, de the deacons and there's the congregation. And they all have their roles and they all play their roles and they're different persons playing the different roles, not the same person playing all three roles or, or playing two roles and one person playing the other role. Right, there are three and the liturgy is supposed to only function when you have these three, right? Sort of like Father, Son and Holy Spirit, right? So they're all equal but not the same, right? There's no hierarchy. One is better than the other. One is, one is first, one is last. No, but there is an order in the sense that the priest does what the priest does. The deacon does what the deacon does. The congregation does what the congregation does. There's order, right? And the reason we're able to function well together is because there's order. And if, if, if the deacon suddenly starts doing what the priest is doing, and, and, and then the congregation starts saying the deacon's parts, it's going to become sour. Everybody's going to get confused. So there's order, but it's not because the priest is better than the deacon, or the deacon is better. I know many deacons who are far holier than me, right? Who are far more righteous than me, right? So it's not, it's order without hierarchy, if that makes any sense. But there's different functions? I don't know if we can say different functions. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. I don't, I don't know. Um, there's another term that people have used, but it's also not perfect. They'll say with different expressions. Different expressions of God. But even that is not, even that is not, is not really perfect. Different roles, but roles, not ro ro roles where different persons are playing each role. Yes, you could say. Yeah. Yes, to remind you of what I taught you. So it's not the Father who will remind you. It's the, it's the Spirit. So everybody has a job, right? Everybody has a job, but they're not defined by that job. It's just their, it's just their job, right? Does that make any sense? So some people walk around saying, I'm a priest. Uh, I'm a doctor, I'm a professor, I'm an engineer, I'm a, I, I, I'm a salesperson, I'm a marketer, I'm, you know, I'm a recruiter, I am, I am, and they, they identify themselves by their, by their job. Other people say, like, I'm John, I also happen to be a priest. It's my, my job, but it's not my identity. Maybe like that, we could say different functions or different jobs, but it doesn't, it doesn't identify them. Their identity is the same because they're of the same essence. Does that make sense? <laughs> I love you, Tansu. No, I'm looking at Jesus on the cross. Yes. And one of the Eli, why have you forsaken me? Yes. So in that in that uh, communication, in that dialogue. Yes. How do you explain that? Oh, that's, oh, I love, I'm so happy you asked that question. That's one of my favorite, favorite questions anybody ever asks about everything. Somebody open a Bible, somebody open up a Bible uh, and go to Psalm 22. Somebody, somebody open up for us Psalm 22. This, this, just thinking about this, you know, sends goosebumps down my spine. Psalm 22 begins saying, 
begins saying, Psalm, Psalm, 20, Psalm 22 starts by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, isn't that what Jesus said? Yes. That's what Jesus why said on the cross. So far from why are you so far, far from, from me? helping me? Yes. And from the words of my groaning. So give me, give me one second, right? So I'm just tell you a little bit of historical context. Okay. Um, uh, even in the liturgy today, when uh, before, between raising of incense, Matt's raising of incense, and the liturgy proper, the offering, and so on, we pray the hours. And the deacon comes around with his prayer book, with his book of hours, he comes around, and he says, he says, Auntie Sue, can you please pray Psalms 22, 23, and uh, uh, 22, 23, and 27? Right? And Dina, can you please pray Psalms 28 and 29? forsaken me. So what do they do? They continue to recite the psalm. Now, if we go a little bit further down in the psalm, we're going to see why Jesus did that. Right? Somebody uh, look at the psalm and see if, they can, see if you can find anything that is relevant why Jesus would say that while he is on the cross. The entire psalm is a prophecy, but there are some there are some parts which are just unmistakable. Look at it. verse seven: All those who see me ridicule me. 
They shoot out the lift, shake their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. This is found in Matthew 27, verse 43. Right? Well, Matthew wasn't there. I know. Yeah. John was there. St. Mary was there. So, presumably, we understand that for the account of parts of the crucifixion and resurrection, St. Mary told the apostles. They told Matthew, Mark, and Luke what happened. So, uh, Luke, we know for sure, because Luke lived with her for like, for like 10 years or something. Luke, two years, five years, eight years, ten years. Um, so, she told St. Luke a lot about, about Jesus' life. The other And only to refer them 
history tells us, passed on from generation to generation, the benefit of being a historical church. What is the last, what are the last words of the song? Verse 31. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. That he has done this could be otherwise translated that it is as they are reciting the song, and they say, to declare this to people who are born, that it is finished. Jesus says with them, it is finished. It is finished. The reconciliation is done. The union is done. Life, why? Not because we were hated by God, and God, that because of the sacrifice of the Son, decided to love us again. No. It is finished because now, as I'm dying, as I'm really going to die, like I'm not dying anymore, I'm dead. Right? I am, I am going into death. Who am I? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Life has entered into death. So the death is abolished. Death is no more. It is finished. Life eternal has begun. There is no more death. Death is now just a passage. Death is not the last page in the book. Death is not the last chapter in the story. That is life. In death, there is life. How do we go to heaven? By dying. Yes. Yes. Right? And some commentators say this, although some of the current modern-day bishops are, have very strong uh, difficulties with this, this interpretation, but it's an ancient interpretation. It says, that, it says that when Jesus died on the cross, those who were in the tombs came back to life, but they didn't come out of the tombs until the resurrection, that Jesus might be the firstborn among men. It says in the Gospel, only in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that they came back to life. Why do we, why do some of us cringe at the concept? Because we cringe at the concept that this guy in his coffin six feet under the ground, right, came back to life and he's like trapped in the coffin, right? You know what I mean? Until like Jesus rises from the dead and his body gets like, translocated out of the coffin and comes out. That's not again, we're kind of stuck in our in our in twenty sixteen. Those who have an like, experience of the old world know that they didn't most people didn't get buried six feet under. Most people got buried like Jesus right? So most people got buried, they got put in a coffin, and the coffin got put on a shelf in a, in a, in a, in a now we have mausoleums and stuff like that, right? But then they didn't have like, you know, they didn't have like, you know, these fancy, beautiful mausoleums. They got... They put a big stone in front of the same thing when Jesus was buried. Wasn't there a big heavy stone? Same thing when Lazarus was buried. Yes, but most crypts didn't have a big heavy stone, they just had a door, right? And Open the door, and your loved one was on shelf number 153, and you go to shelf number 153, and there's a wood box there, and there's your loved one, right? Or the remains of the room, right? So when they came back to life, they weren't like tracks, feet under, you know what I mean? Anyways, the idea that, that death lost all its power the moment Jesus died, death no longer, there's no longer something called death. Because death became a portal to life. You want to go outside? You're going to have to walk through the door. 
Right? Now you're inside, on your outside. That now didn't become a wall. It just became the door that leads from one light into the continuation into another. Everything changed. So that's why, that's what Jesus was trying to tell them. Jesus was trying to tell them, look at the prophecies. Look, it's happening in front of your eyes. But they're, they're, they're blind. Right? Even though they're saying the words, they pierced my hands and my feet, they divided my garments for lots. It's happening in front of them. But no, no, no connection. Right? Maybe there was a connection, somebody did connect. There was a soldier named Longinos. Longinos was blind in one eye. And he's the one who took the spear and pierced Jesus' side. And the water and blood came flowing from, from there and splashed on him and he regained sight. And he said, truly, this is the Son of God. And he later became, became Christian immediately and became a follower. And then he later on became an evangelist and so on. And he died actually as a martyr. Saint, the saint in the season of Chronicles, the saint, Saint Longinus, right? So I'm sure he heard them reciting the song, looks at this guy, he pierces him, and blood flows out of him like he's still alive. But he's dead. He says, how can he be alive? You know, like for somebody to bleed, for somebody to bleed to spurt blood, they need a pump, you know? Like you have a pump, and you cut one of the pipes, the blood is going to spurt out, right? Because the pump is working. The, the pump is not working. Because he's dead. But the blood is spurting out of him. But he's alive. Doesn't make sense. Then he's healed. Then the prophecies are fulfilled. It says, behold, this was a righteous man. Right? It says, this is not normal. The significance of the blood and the water, I mean, I don't know that the Romans knew all of this physiology, right? But the way that people died when they were crucified, they died of asphyxiation. So they, they basically, unable to breathe properly from the severe exhaustion, sometimes people would stay crucified for days, three, four days. That's why, they, that's why they went and told Pilate, break their legs so that they'll just hang and they won't be able to breathe anymore because they're just hanging from their arms, right? And then they'll, they'll just die, right? So they would die out of, from an inability to breathe, right? Which leads to heart failure, right? What happens in heart failure? They develop water. You say, well, he's got water on the lungs, right? He's got water in his lungs. He's got water around his lungs as well. So when, they, when, when these guys would have a heart failure that led to death, the, the cavity that has the lung would be full of water. So they're used to puncturing the, the, the guy, right? So some blood is in the heart, but the heart is about the size of your fist, or a man's fist, right? So the blood in there would come out, so a little bit of blood, and a lot of water. That's what they used to see, right? And if he was still alive, right, then, then some water would come out, but a lot of blood, and it would spurt out, because, you know, like, like cut and the heart is still pumping, right? And when, the, when, the, when it stops spurting out, then he's dead. Right? Because so they want to make sure you were dead. Right? So these were their ways of knowing who's alive and who's dead. So now they pierce him, and water comes out, so he's dead. He's got that end-stage heart failure. But water, blood is also spurting out, so he's alive. So how can he be dead and be alive? Does it make sense? Does that make kind of make sense to everybody? 
Again, I hope I wasn't um, derogatory or, 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 or I don't, I'm not you know, insulting, mean to be insulting about any other uh, you know, denominations of Christianity and the theology and how they understand things. But it doesn't make sense for us as Orthodox to see any division in the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit always together, always working together, and everything they do, they're doing together. And that speaks to how we are as humans, speaks to how we should live and be as, as, a, as, as a church. And as, as people, even with people who are not Christian, people with all of creation, you know? So, like, in a certain sense, maybe we should all be environmentalists as well, right? Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.